Maybe you've experienced this. You've probably experienced it. When you finish your time of prayer, you feel like your prayers didn't make it any further than the end of your lips. It's almost like they evaporated into, into thin air after you prayed them. Now, sometimes that's a feeling and not reality. And we have to live by truth, not by feelings. But sometimes that feeling is reality. Sometimes that's actually true. Our prayers do not reach the ears of, of God. And the Bible is very clear about the fact that God wants to answer our prayers. Just a couple of weeks ago, I spoke on assurance of answered prayer and how God has made so many wonderful and magnificent promises to us as His people that He encourages us to pray by those assurances, by those promises, and by just the confidence we can have that when we pray in Jesus' name, God hears our prayers and will answer those prayers. But what about when we don't see God answering our prayers? What about when our prayers do seem to dissipate like vapor very shortly after they leave our lips? There are times when we should just pause and reflect and think, okay, am I just feeling this way because I'm going through a difficult time? I, I, I don't see God answering my prayers immediately, so I just... I just feel like God isn't hearing me, or it's the reality that God isn't hearing me. Because if there's sin in our lives, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin, God doesn't hear us. In fact, I want to make several points this morning. The first one is this, the absolute necessity of confession of sin, the absolute necessity of confession of sin. And there are two passages I want to direct your attention to as I, as I uh, think about this thought. The first is Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's clear, it's direct, it's pointed, it's forthright, it's understandable. You don't have to uh, be able to be some kind of astute theologian to, to get the point. He makes it evident for all of us. The second is Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So if God seems distant and unresponsive, it may very well be because He is. He may be very distant from you. Now, we know by that spiritually, not, not physically. And He may be unresponsive because His ears are dull to our prayers. When that's the case, we don't need to be saved again. If Jay Lynn and I have a, have a, a tiff with one another and and usually I'm the one that needs to ask, ask forgiveness. Uh, we don't need to be remarried, but we do need restoration of love and fellowship. Uh, we do need restoration of communion. And so I will ask her, honey, would you please forgive me? I shouldn't have said that that way. I shouldn't even have said it at all. 
And it's the same way with God. We don't need to be saved again because we can't lose our salvation. We have assurance of salvation. That was the the first message in this series on assurance that we talked about, assurance of salvation. But our fellowship with God can be hindered by sin in our lives. He can feel distant and remote to us. And it's not just something that we feel, but it's something that is spiritually and actually true as far as it relates to our interaction with Him. And so we do need to be a people that confesses sin. But the second point I want to bring to your attention this morning is this, the incredible and amazing promise of forgiveness and cleansing in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And this is one of those verses, if you have children, I would memorize this verse with your children. I, I would say it together as a family before eating a family dinner. Before everybody goes their separate ways after the family dinner, I would say it again. I'd say it every day for a week. Uh, maybe you have a busy week and you only get a couple of family dinners per week. Maybe you say it right before you tuck them in at night. If you're a single adult, this is a verse you probably have memorized, but it's a verse maybe that you need to remind yourself of. John put it this way, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous so that He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, Let me direct your attention to three or four thoughts very quickly in this verse. The first one is this, we will sin. To say that we don't sin is to make him him God a liar, and the truth is not in us. In the very same passage, in the very same context, he says that. That's why God has made us this promise, because he knows we will sin. We're all being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus if we know Jesus. And the reality is, every day... At some point, or at many points in the day, we fail to do what we ought to do, we fail to say what we ought to say, we fail to think what we ought to think. And that, that is sin. It falls short of God's standard. It falls short of God's mark. And so God has given us a means of restoration, of relationship. So the first thought is, we will sin. The second thought is, our responsibility is to confess that sin. To confess that sin is to agree with God that that thought, that action, that word, that misstep was actually sin. That's what the word confess means. It means to agree with God. But it's more than just agreeing with God. It's agreeing with God and seeking by God's grace to turn away from that sin. Now, we we may very well commit that sin again, but as we confess it to God, we are by His grace seeking to do battle with that sin. So, our responsibility is to recognize we sin. Our responsibility is to agree with God about that sin. But notice the one that we're confessing it to, the, the one who is faithful and righteous. That's who God is. He's faithful to us. He's faithful to Himself. He's faithful to His promises. He's righteous. He's holy. He's light. There's no darkness in Him at all. So what will God do if we confess our sin to Him? He will forgive us and cleanse us. To say that He forgives us means that He erases the chalkboard. 
If the sin is written on a chalkboard, so to speak, the spiritual blackboard of heaven, he erases that. Now, with our sin on that blackboard, we don't lose our salvation, but it does hinder our fellowship with God, our communion with God. So he forgives us by forgetting it. Now, the, the bad thing is for you and me, we, we don't forget. We're not divine, but he forgets. He puts it behind his back. He treats us as if it never happened. And then he cleanses us from iniquity. Sin stains us. It causes us to be spiritually dirty. And so he cleanses us. He washes us. It's, it's like working outside on a, on a hot day in the Arizona sun in the middle of July. And you get sweaty and grimy and dirty and you go in and you take a cold shower. And that cold shower just rinses the dirt and the grime and the sweat from your body. Well, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful and magnificent promise from God. But I want us to spend the remainder of our time this morning to think about a real-life example. Psalm 32. A real-life example. And there are going to be four thoughts that I want to bring out in this psalm. But this psalm was chosen with great intentionality because it's a psalm that reflects David's disposition after he had confessed his sin with Bathsheba. We talked about Joseph and David last week, two men who took very different approaches to temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, you'll remember, says that God will provide a way of escape. Joseph took that way of escape. After Potiphar's wife regularly was trying to seduce him, and when she got him in, a, in a, what could have been a very compromising situation, he ran from her, and eventually it led him to imprisonment. Probably Paul had in mind when he wrote, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Paul was probably thinking about Joseph. But David, when David walked out on the veranda, walked out on his patio that evening, out on his second floor porch, he had already been in a cataclysmic spiritual freefall. His men were at war, and he stayed behind. He was the military leader, the, mil the military general. He was the, the king of his forces. While they were out fighting, he, he remained behind. And, and nobody commits sexual immorality on the, in the moment. They, they've been moving toward it for quite some time. And that's what, was, that's what happened to David. So when David walked out on that patio, it's almost certain that he knew what he would see. Several backyards below. There was Bathsheba bathing. And there David stood gawking. He sent for her. She became pregnant. He was complicit in the murder of her husband. 
by having him sent to the very front lines of battle and then having the troops withdraw and leave him there for certain death. Then a man by the name of Nathan, a brave, courageous prophet of God, looked at David in the face and confronted him about his sin. And, and David, by God's grace, repented of his sin and received God's forgiveness. Now, there were consequences for that sin. His family was in utter shambles the rest of his life because of the choices that he had made. Catastrophic problems in his home because of his decision. And yet, God in His goodness and grace and mercy forgave him and cleansed him and restored the communion and fellowship of the great songwriter of ancient Israel, the psalmist of old. And Psalm 32 tells us a little bit of that story, a little bit of the experience that he had. It's a real-life example of sin forgiven. I want you to notice in the first two verses with me, present joy and assurance of sin's forgiveness. Present joy in the assurance of sin's forgiveness. Underline the word blessed in verse 1 and the word blessed in verse, 30, in verse 2. He, he could not have said this before his confession, but after his confession, he saw himself as a blessed man. He saw himself as blessed because he had confessed his sin to God, and God didn't put him on probation and said, well, I'll just see how you do. Uh, I'm, I'm going to just make sure that you really mean it. No, God forgave him and cleansed him of his sins. And so he, he understood and identified himself as a blessed person. Now, notice the various words that he uses here for sin. He uses four terms in these first two, uh, in these first two verses. He uses the word transgression, sin, iniquity, and deceit. Transgression means to step across the line. Sin means to fall short of the mark. Iniquity communicates the idea of the guilt one experiences from transgression and sin. And the deceit is, a, is an attempt to cover up that sin by deceiving oneself that they have sinned or by deceiving others that they have, that they have sinned. It communicates a downward spiral like water going down the drain of the, of the tub. Notice this downward spiral. We willfully choose to sin. That is, we step across the line, which leads us off of God's path and causes us to fall short of God's standards. Our hearts are either sensitive to what we've done and we confess our sin, or we desensitize our heart and try to cover up our sin, deceiving others and ourselves. In this process, it happens slowly, but inevitably, it's the path that we take if we don't deal regularly with our sin, if we don't keep a short account of our sins. But the main thing is he, he has confessed it. He considers himself now in verses 1 and 2 to be blessed. But I want you to notice in verses 3 through 5, past remembrance and why we need to confess our sin. 
He looks back on a very dark period of time in his life. He looks back on a, on a time when he had made bad decisions and he had made bad choices and, and things were not as they ought to have been. And notice what he did. He said, I kept, when I kept silent about my sin, now notice the results. When I kept silent about my sin, I tried to cover up my sin. I tried to hide my sin. I tried to suppress my sin. My body, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. Selah. Now, I don't think you, you, you typically read Selah, but it does communicate the idea, and there's three Selahs in, in this hymn, this uh, psalm, this song. And it's usually thought to carry the idea of a pause, a reflection. The sin has consequences. It has consequences on others, and it has consequences on ourselves. My body wasted away, groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as with the heat of summer. Selah. Have you ever thought that the perpetual dark cloud that hovers over your life may be the result of unconfessed sin? Maybe the reason you're a glass is half empty person and you, and, you, and you typically are drawn toward the negative. Nothing adds up, nothing measures up, nothing, nothing uh, meets up to, the, to, your, to your standards, your wishes, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations. Is that God's hand is heavy upon you. The groaning and the disappointment that you have about life may be the result of unconfessed sin. You have no spiritual vitality or energy. You, you just even find it hard to put one foot in front of the other. Life is heavy and draining and difficult. That's what he's saying in verse 3 and 4. It was a dark period of his life. It was a horrible period in his life. All due to his sin and his refusal to confess it to God after he had committed it. But then look in verse 5 with me because he says he acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged it to God. He confessed it to God. And notice what God did. God forgave him. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my wrongdoings to the Lord. And now that's what he did. He acknowledged it. He confessed it. He didn't hide it. That was his responsibility. Nobody could do it for him. But notice, and you, this is what God did for him, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He washed him, he cleansed him, he bathed him spiritually. He erased the, the, dry, uh, the dry marker board that had adultery, gawking, betrayal, a long litany of things. He erased it. He washed him. He cleansed him. He protected him. He forgave him. He forgave him of 
his sin. Selah. He said, pause and think about that dark season in your life that was the result of the choices you've made. Then stop for a moment and think about what God did when you confessed your sin to him. Think about it. He forgave you. Why are you living with guilt and remorse? Now, there is the consequences of sin, that's true. But the communion, the fellowship, the openness between you and God is now open. He's forgiven you. Satan would want you to waller in the mire of self-pity rather than restore your life where it's glorious and honoring to God. And so, I want you to notice thirdly, God's provision for future needs. God didn't stop there. God said, now that we're restored, now that our relationship was, is right, now that the means of communication is, have been renewed, I invite you to pray. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you. He says, come back into my presence. Experience my presence. Pour out your heart to me. Then he says, secondly, in verse uh, 7, he will protect. David. Notice the word you. It's used three times. The pronoun you. You are my hiding place. You keep me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. That's what God does. The restoration to fellowship isn't God putting us on probation. It's God restoring fully and completely and, and renewing that closeness of love and intimacy that we had with Him. So He says, you're my hiding place. You're my, my uh, helper. You are my deliverer. Now notice there it is again. Think about it. He's our protector. And he surrounds us with songs of deliverance. I want you to notice with me in verse 8. I want you to notice the idea of God's promise. God's promise. His promise to guide us, to instruct us, to help us. In verse 8 he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. He gives guidance. My eye will be upon you. So he promises divine guidance, divine direction. There, there's not just the restoration of fellowship. There's promise of divine guidance. What do I do with the mess that I've made now that you've forgiven me? He'll guide us. Uh, what do I do now that our, our relationship and fellowship is restored? He'll give us divine guidance. Uh, where do I turn? What, what decision should I make? He, he'll give us divine guidance. But if there's, if there's an interruption of fellowship, if there's, a, if there's a difficulty of connecting with God because of unconfessed and unrepentant sin, we miss out on so much. We miss, out on, we miss out on prayer. We miss out on guidance. We miss out on deliverance, as he says in, in these three verses. Uh, but finally, I want you to notice in the, in the final three verses of the, of the chapter 
that God says that, that we've got to make some decisions. We've got to make some decisions. First, don't be stubborn. Verse 9. Look in verse 9. He uses the horse and the mule. Don't be mule-headed. Don't be stubborn. When the Lord convicts you of sin, confess that sin. If you need to confess it to someone else because you've wronged them, offended them, confess it to them. Don't be stubborn like a mule. You're going to have to make a choice, he says in verse 10, because there are only two paths. There are only two ways. There's the way of sorrow. That's the way that we all have experienced at different phases and at different seasons in our lives. And we take the path of sorrow when we choose to not confess our sin, not to repent of our sin, not to keep close relationship with God. But the one who trusts in the Lord, the one who trusts in the Lord here is the one that confesses their sin to God. But the one who trusts in the Lord, goodness will surround him. I like the way that sounds. Often the Bible talks about being surrounded by our enemies. Just a moment ago, we talked about being surrounded by songs of deliverance. Now we talk about being surrounded by the goodness of God. Everywhere we look, we see the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, the blessings of God all around us. Not because we're sinless, but because we acknowledge our sin, we confess it to the Lord, and we receive His forgiveness. And then he says in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Notice the verbs. Be glad. Rejoice. Shout. Notice he says, be glad in the Lord. He says to the righteous ones, rejoice. He says to the ones that are upright in heart, shout for joy. What a a change from that dark season, that, that terribly, terribly arduous time when God's hand was heavy upon him, when his energy was zapped. When he felt guilty and great remorse for his sin, what a difference between then and now. What changed? Everything changed. God didn't change, but David changed. David realized that he could not hide his sin from God, and he had to quit deceiving himself. Self-deception is an easy sin to fall into. As if the problem is not mine, the problem is everybody else's. The problem is nobody understands me. The problem is nobody's helping me. The problem is it's none about me. It's all about them. Well, that's very seldom the case, that it's all about others and none about me. And so we confess our sin. We're glad in the Lord. We rejoice in Him and we shout for joy. Let me give you a a final thought, and then we're going to have prayer together, and and Caleb is going to come and lead us in song. The final thought is this. God's love is glorified in His forgiveness. There's no sin that we can commit that God won't forgive. There's no sin that we can't bring to Him. God loves to show His graciousness in His forgiveness because He's faithful and righteous. 
And when God forgives us, it extols His greatness and glory and splendor. And so bring your sin to Him. Confess it big and small. Acknowledge it for what it is. If you need to make something right with another person, make it right with them as well. But begin with, begin with God because God has wonderful plans for those who receive forgiveness of sin. Would you stand? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer and then Caleb's going to come and we'll sing together. Let's pray together. Father, we have all experienced a time in our lives and seasons in our lives when you seemed distant from us and it had everything to do with us. Choices that we've made, decisions that we made. And Father, there's a a sense of spiritual insanity when we run from you. It's a spiritual form of of lunacy to try and hide from You. And yet, Father, Your Spirit lovingly pursues us. You graciously discipline us. And You help us to see the sin that needs to be confessed and repented of. Thank You that Your promise of forgiveness stands like a beautiful, brilliant light on the pages of Scripture. Thank you that David is a real-life example that one can sin and sin greatly and sin heinously and yet find forgiveness in you. And so, Father, as we sing in just a moment, I pray we would sing loudly and boldly and confidently because we have been forgiven of our sin. And, Father, if there's sin that we're hiding, I pray in Jesus' name, that during our singing, we would just pause momentarily and in the quietness of our hearts, confess that self-pity, maybe self-righteousness, maybe snarkiness toward our spouse, whatever it may be, that we would confess that to you and receive the cleansing and renewal of the work of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.